0: This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, we're uh, still in a study of 1 Corinthians, and so if you have your Bible, I'm going to encourage you to take it out and open it to 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 6. We're kind of plowing our way through this book. So far, we have noticed that um, this church in Corinth, it's a beautiful mess, Paul has been correcting them and he's talked to them about divisions and backbiting and their perspective is all wrong. They're focusing on all the wrong things. Last week we saw that they were somehow able to actually become prideful when there was sexual immorality, incest in the church. And instead of responding in a godly way, they were actually proud of it and boasting. And so Paul is writing them and he's correcting them and he's, he's trying to get them to understand that, that their responses are not correct and, and how different they should be living. In fact, he seems to be saying to them that you're not the people you used to be. Since you were saved, you've become citizens of a future kingdom. And as, futures, as citizens in that future kingdom, you should be living differently from those around you. Let's start reading First uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. Paul writes this. Now he's he, he's talking about some immorality that I heard about. Now he's going to switch to another subject. But I think the emphasis is the same. Live like, live like who you are, not like those around you. Whether it's incest and your response to it or now, Disputes. What he's going to say is, as members or as citizens of this future kingdom, you should live differently, and now he's going to give them a couple of specifics, and the first one is right here in this first section, verses 1 to 6. He's going to say to them, you should relate differently to each other. Verse 1, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment? In, instead of before the Lord's people? Let's pause there. I'm wondering, would you say that our culture is especially litigious? <laughs> we get a little going to court and sue happy? Yeah, it, obviously that's the case. In fact, I was doing some research and it was more difficult to nail down than I anticipated, but I found a, a, a peer reviewed study uh, back, it's dated 2010, so already the numbers are old and yet, coming out of Harvard Law School, and they were trying to figure out how the U.S. culture compared to other countries, other westernized countries in terms of lawsuits, and uh, the numbers were kind of interesting. It basically came back that uh, in the U.S. there were, in that year, about 18 million lawsuits. That's 5,806 for every 100,000 people. 5,000 plus. Lawsuits for every 100,000 people. Just as one com- com- comparison in the nation of Canada just north, instead of 5,800 per 100,000, they had 1,400. More than five times as many suits. Ouch. The truth of the matter is, legal issues kind of permeate our entire society. I heard a really interesting uh, story actually, actually, what I'm going to try to do is describe for you a cartoon because it was a cartoon that was in Christianity Today a while back. It was the setting was Sunday morning, and uh, you know the organist and the pianist and everybody they're all in their place. And this woman, kind of dressed nicely, comes up front. She's holding a microphone, and um, the pianist is just about to play the introduction for what is obviously a special piece of music. And uh, and then the woman in the, the caption in the cartoon says. Um, I'd like to share a song with you that the Lord gave me a year ago. And even though He did give it to me, any reproduction of this song in any form without my written consent will consent <laughs> infringement on the copyright law that grants me to sue your pants off. Praise God. And then she sings the song. Uh, yeah, it, it's, I mean, it's everywhere, isn't it? What we need to understand is the same was true in this culture, especially Greek culture. Uh, Paul says, do you dare take it before ungodly for judgment? The, the word dare, it's almost like treasonous, like, like you're, you actually are going against the, the core of what you say you believe. You see, in Greek culture, lawsuits were, they would happen kind of out in the agora, right, out in this uh, kind of, open space, and the judges, and so basically, they weren't private little affairs, and if you were walking through the courtyard, you could kind of stand around and listen in. Everybody's business could be your business, and lawsuits were almost a form of entertainment, and they loved to listen to well-argued suits and complaints, and and they would kind of applaud, right, those that did well. We do the same thing. You watch Law and Order or whatever else, and... So there's the, an, in, an intrigue connected to it. He goes on, verse 2. Or don't you know, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do not ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church. I say this to your shame, to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Now, he starts out by saying, don't you know? And if you read through the chapter, you're going to actually see Paul say that little phrase, don't you know? At least six times. Don't you know? Don't you know? It's very obvious that they should. He believes they should know better than this by now. Probably because Paul addressed the matter specifically as he was planting the church and growing the church there. Now, he talks about the fact that believers are going to judge the world and judge angels. Hmm. We could talk a long time about that, but it is fairly clear in God's word that, that believers in God's kingdom are going to play a role working alongside Christ in ruling and governing, and that includes judging issues. We, I'm not sure what a court case in heaven would look like. I don't know what a, We kind of imagine no dispute would exist, but it's clear that God's children are engaged in the process of ruling over this new kingdom. You don't have to turn there, but listen along as I uh, share a passage from Daniel chapter 7. Starting in uh, verse 21, uh, Daniel says this in the book of Daniel. And as I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom, the believers. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under the earth will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. Dan saw in a future day when those who believed in Jesus were actually given the authority to rule. Again, we don't know exactly what that looks like, but it is clear throughout Scripture. And Jesus said something very similar if you look at Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Jesus said this, I truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So we may not know what it looks like, but it's clear that the scriptures do teach that those who are believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ will share in the reign someday. I don't know about judging angels. I did some looking, and I really couldn't find a single passage that says that believers are going to judge angels. But there are a number of passages that make it clear that God is going to judge those beings, and we're not going to take the time to look, but in Isaiah 24, the prophet says that God judges everyone, including those spiritual beings. In 2 Peter 2, it reminds the believers that Peter was writing to, that God judged the angels. If he judged angels who sinned, he certainly will judge people. And in Jude 6, there's even a description of angels or angelic beings that are kept in some kind of custody until they are completely judged, finally judged on the day of judgment. So it's clear that God it will... Inv- include us, include those who've trusted in Christ in this process of judging. And and since he's judging angels, it's not a stretch to imagine that we might judge angels. But the argument that Paul's making is from the greater to the lesser. Wait a minute. Remember I told you guys that someday when God puts this whole economy on its head, that the humble will be raised up, that those who mourn will be blessed. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Remember that day? And then instead of, Being persecuted, you will judge and rule. Remember that? I told you about that? Well, if you're going to judge the world one day with Christ, I don't understand why you don't think you're competent to take care of conflicts within the church. What he's saying is, I think you could handle this. Verse 4, he says, Why do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? In... uh, 2 Corinthians 2, just a few chapters before we looked at this passage. Remember when he's describing those who don't have the Holy Spirit? He says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but he considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. If that's true, Paul says, then why in the world? What makes you think that judges who have rejected the Lord Jesus see your faith as foolish? I don't understand why you would think they would do a better job judging disputes between you guys than you would. You see, whenever a dispute came up in this church, remember, it was a church of winners, not losers. Everybody wanted to win, everybody was interested in who did win, and they wanted to be known to be on the winner's team. Everything was competitive. Yeah, it seeps into churches too. I know churches where they have multiple adult Sunday school classes. And the teachers of those classes let one another know, well, you know, we had 36 in our class again. And you're just like, well, so what? But yet there's that little, right? Because to be honest, I like to win. It doesn't happen much, but I like to win in theory. You see, Paul's trying to get them to understand what you need to settle disputes is actually already here. Now, perhaps they were taking each other to court because if you thought you had a case and you were going to win it, you wanted everybody to see you win. Or maybe, maybe there were some finances involved and everybody knows, you don't, I don't want to lose that. And I'm not sure where the church will come down on that, so but I know a judge out there, he'll just if I'm right, he'll just give me I got the money. Have you heard that lately on TV? Get the settlement you deserve. Yeah. <laughs> Buy the car that you deserve. Own the home that you deserve. Take the vacation that you deserve. Get the spouse that you deserve. <laughs> Oops, <laughs> some of you have that already. Uh, <laughs> Is there no one among you who's wise enough? And then he says something interesting. He says, I say this to shame you. Ouch! In chapter 4, as he was writing to them, he said, now, I'm doing this gently because I don't want to shame you. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm trying to help you understand. In chapter 4, he didn't want to shame them. But here, he says, oh, no, I want to shame you. Why would... And yet, wait, in chapter 4, he's talking about something within the body. But if this is coming before the community and it's gonna be public, then guess what? I will shame you. You wanna take this public? Let's take it public. I'm gonna shame you. In our culture, shame is something evil. Oh, shame, it's so destructive. I just wanna say, I'm not sure I would buy into that. Shame is the normal response to guilt. It's normal, it's not pleasant, and it can be destructive but you're not supposed to hang on to it for a long time. It's kind of like pain when you touch something hot. Is pain destructive? Well, I guess if you just keep hanging on to the pot, even though it's burning your hands. No, but what we do is as soon as we feel it, we react and try to take care of what's really wrong. Shame should force us to deal with guilt and make it right. He says, shame wouldn't be a bad thing. I'm going to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge? In fact, he says, you could probably find the person who is least prepared among you, and they would still be better prepared than some of these judges. Now, I guess I have to speak to this. I have grown to have a great deal of respect for judges in general. They, they take care of court cases just constantly, and they've been trained... And often, they can exhibit great wisdom and a a great ability to be objective and to find where an argument does or doesn't work and to come to some decision, and it's their job to keep coming to decisions. And you would think that the potential for them to get pretty good at that would be high, and often it is. At the same time, our system is one that allows judges to come to terrible decisions and there's not much recompense, there's not much payback, so I know it can go both ways. They've been well-trained, but if it has to do with something that includes a value, especially a value like loving your brother more than yourself, putting someone else's needs above your own, it's an easy thing to realize that Chances of this judge, unless he knows the Lord Jesus as a Savior, chances of this judge, he or she, making the just, the spiritually just decision, it's pretty slim. Let's go on, verse 6. But instead, one brother takes another brother to court, and this in front of unbelievers. He basically says, You're people of a future kingdom. Now I don't know. I, I don't know if you guys knew this, but I am a person from the future. I'm from the future. Um, think about Star Trek, right? People from the future. Don't you love the way that they're displayed? For instance, um, they don't have any any vices, right? Oh, we outgrew all that. Money, like, oh, we have no need for money now. <laughs> yeah, right. But, but see. People from the future, they kind of have this tendency to act like they're above the rules here, these little petty rules. These don't apply to us in my time. In my time, nobody really cares about silver and gold. And even though we're scoffing, all of a sudden we have to stop and go, wait. If I really am a person from the future, like Paul says, I am a citizen of a future kingdom. The kingdom hasn't arrived yet, but I'm already here. Sermon on the Mount, he, he talks openly about beginning to live your life according to the standards and the expectations of that kingdom, not this kingdom. Wait, I'm a, I'm a person from the future. You, if you put your faith in Christ, is a, you are a person from the future. What he's saying is start living by the rules of that future kingdom. Instead of doing what you're doing now, which is airing your dirty laundry in front of unsaved people. No, none of it is dirty. <laughs> you can come sniff if you want. All right, um, and no, I do not wear that red thing very often. <laughs> but I just don't have the heart to throw it away. <laughs> Maybe Christmas Eve. If you want to come over Christmas Eve, anyway, no. No, you don't want to do that. So what he's saying to them, this verse 6 is kind of like a summary statement. But instead, one brother takes another to court and you do it in front of unbelievers. He's been saying, don't be so divided. Stop picking sides. And now don't damage each other and especially don't do it in front of unsaved judges. Don't display your dirty laundry out in front of those who need Christ. The truth is, you can settle this among yourselves. And in that way, You can use the law of Christ rather than overlook it. To live as people of the future, they need, and perhaps we need, to think differently about how we relate to one another. The second point Paul makes is, and it starts in verse 7, verses 7 and 8, and he says, you need to think differently about yourselves. Starting in verse 7. The very fact, he says, that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. You have lost before you've begun. You don't understand. My, you know, hey, Paul, I've got a pretty good case. You've got a pretty good case in, in front of which judge? An earthly judge or your heavenly father? Because I'm going to tell you right now, I already know how this will play out in the Supreme Court where there is just one justice, and he's just. I'm telling you, you have already lost this battle before you've even begun. Now look at the shocking alternative that Paul offers. He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? And we go, I can think of lots of reasons why not to be defrauded, Lots of reasons not to be cheated. Can you think of reasons why you don't want to be cheated? Number one, you work hard for your stuff. Number two, if you're cheated, it means that they were smarter than you. You would rather be smarter than them. I don't want to look like a loser. And we could go on and on and on. He says, why not rather be wronged? I can answer that easily. But I think you understand the power of a rhetorical question. Instead, he says, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. Ouch. Oh, they were competitive, all right? They all wanted to win. And they were all tempted to do whatever it took to win. And isn't that the way disputes go? The dispute might start quite simply, and there's a misunderstanding and a miscommunication and some hurt feelings. But if there's one thing you know about disputes is if they go on for much time at all, as the sides become, become, begin to draw up, then, then we start to put little spins on things. And we find, you know, kind of facts to back up. Oh, and you know what? And then there was a time when she, remember when she, yeah, yeah. And we begin to build a case in our minds. And before you know it, we have taken what is truth and have spun it so that it supports our case long before we've ever stopped to consider if our case is actually even just. We are so American, we are so American about our sense of what justice looks like, our sense of pride about being a winner, that sometimes we are more American than we are Christian. And Paul says to them, and he would say to us, you need to rethink this. Going at one another so that you win, because you are a winner, doesn't line up with what Jesus taught. Think about what Jesus taught us. Start Matthew uh, chapter 2, Matthew 2, starting in verse 14. He said, This, you've heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. How many times have we heard Jesus tell us to love those who are our enemies? We, we, we would choose to love them from a distance. He says, actually bless those who persecute you. You can maybe love from a distance. You can't bless from a distance. What did he say about the cloak and the shirt? Like, here, you want this too? Now, some of you are going to argue back. You're already arguing back in in, in your mind. And I understand I did too. Because I'm thinking, wait, 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 wait. In our system, there are times when just giving in and being steamrolled would be wrong. There are times when cases are worth fighting for. And and I'm going to agree with you. When there are issues of justice, it's worth standing up for. And if an issue cannot be settled, if the issue is believe, between believers, it should be settled in the church. We're going to talk about how that works in a minute. But, but sometimes these suits are with companies or corporations or entities, and, and it's not really so much a person as an entity. And sometimes we're standing up for what's... It's, it's how we, our society decides what's right. So I'm going to admit that there are times... When a lawsuit isn't automatically evil. But Paul is addressing is something that is much more personal. He couldn't even conceive of a law, a system like ours, perhaps. He's talking about how they interact with each other. And he says, stop dragging each other off to court, and you need to think of yourselves differently. You see, you're followers of Christ. Our value system is different. Look what Paul wrote in Romans 12, starting in verse 11, or 17, I'm sorry. Romans 12:17. do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, not only did they need to stop treating each other so poorly, they needed to start treating each other differently, relating to one another differently, and they needed to think of themselves differently. I don't work like this anymore. My values are different. I would actually rather that you take that from me than for me to injure you. And I want you to notice that Paul addresses the issue of justice. Nowhere in this do we say that suddenly justice is tossed out the window. Justice is instead entrusted to God. You might trick me, you might cheat me, you do not trick my father. I'll let it to him. By the way, have you ever seen times when it seemed like someone got away with something? when you thought, oh, they're gonna get away with something, and then you hear later, wait, what? What? You don't wish it on them, and yet you can't help but wonder, was that you? God is just. If he is slow to judge, it's, he's doing it out of grace and love, giving people a chance to repent. But he is just. That's why those really scary stories are throughout the Old Testament. Even the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira. Remember the budding new church? You know, how do you think our church would grow if a couple of leaders who just gave a nice big gift died on the spot? (laughs) Okay, come back next week. (laughs) Why such severity? Because God will judge what is not just. You can count on that, Paul says. Thirdly, verses 9 and 10, he's going to say to them, you should also be living differently from the world. I uh, heard a story. There was a woman that went uh, on a, a dating website. uh one of the dating services. And as she typed in profile, she said that she did not care about a, a guy's looks. She didn't care about his income. She didn't care about his background. All she cared about was that he was a man of upright character. And a man went on, and he, he typed in that uh, all he wanted was a woman who was intelligent. And so they were both a little surprised when the, when the service matched the two of them up. And the service said, well, it's pretty obvious. You guys both have a lot in common. You're both compulsive liars. <laughs> You know, lying, being dishonest, is so prevalent in our society. It, it just, it's like the air we breathe, isn't it? You hear it all the time. The check is in the mail. Oh, give me your number, and the doctor will call you right back. Right. One size fits all. Liar! <laughs> All right, so leave your resume and somebody will call you. Good luck with that. This is gonna hurt me more than it's gonna hurt you. Oh, your table will be ready in just a few minutes. Open wide, this won't hurt. <laughs> it's not about the money, it's about the principle. Yeah. Lying is everywhere in our culture. It's all around us. It's woven into the very fabric of how you were raised and who we are. We have to understand that Paul's message to them is that they don't have to any longer think of themselves as part of that lying matrix. You see, they've been changed, he says. You don't have to act like you're citizens of this world because you're not. Let's start reading in verse 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We should probably stop there for a minute. It's kind of a harsh list. Will we talk about it for a second? First of all, you know what's really funny is how often when this, a passage like this comes up and somebody will focus on homosexuality. Hmm, funny that you want to talk about that and you don't want to talk about swindlers or drunkards or slanderers. So it's important that we notice that all of those behaviors, all of those sins are listed together. Now, how do we, how do we sh- jive this? I mean, it's pretty clear that these people don't get into heaven. Are you uncomfortable yet? Well, uh, well um, hmm. Be, but, but see, they can. They, I mean, do you feel the double clutch? See, Jesus, Paul has been echoing Jesus' teaching. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If somebody wants your coat, give them your cloak too. And so the application, I guess, would be, if you're in this congregation and someone in the church is cheating you, just go ahead and let them have what they want. Let them cheat you. God will take care of you. Thank you very much. That's so comforting. Oh, but wait, Paul says. I've been addressing those of you who are getting cheated. How about we address the cheaters? Yes. He says, let me remind you. Cheaters don't go to heaven. Drunkards and addicts don't go to heaven. Sexually impure people do not go to heaven. I think what just happened to us happened to them. What does that mean? Luckily, he's not done. Verse 11, and that is what some of you were. Whew. Oh, good. Oh, good, because I thought somebody was following me this week and, and that you had some, some dirt. I just, whew. But you were washed but you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I don't know. What do you hear in those verses? Do you hear condemnation? Or do you hear hope? Well, see, I think those who don't know Christ as their Savior hear something very frightening, as they should. And those of us who know that we were just like that and we have put our faith in Christ because it was our only hope. We hear nothing but hope in that. I also want to suggest that those among them and among us who are tempted to think that we can believe in Jesus but then keep living the way we used to live before we were washed should feel very uncomfortable with that. Well, well, I don't understand. I mean, I don't know what you're getting at, Mike. I mean, I believe, so I'm in heaven. God can't, I mean, you know, I, I, I made him sign on the dotted line. I, I I, love watching us squirm, and believe me, I squirm too. I mean, I mean, I, I, I know it's not good. I, I know it's not ideal. I mean, I'm still in process. Hey, nobody's perfect. Who are you talking to? God, I think he knows. Nobody's perfect. I mean, it's like, so, and you can almost hear him going, wait, wait, okay, so tell me I mean, okay, so you believed, and you washed. Tell me, what, what's the problem? Well, because because I, I, this isn't really what you, you know, but, see, I, whew, ah. What you're getting at is that shouldn't be a part of your life anymore. Right. Uh, well, oh, you're a believer, right? Yes. Then that shouldn't be a part of your life anymore. I know. I know. Forgive me. But what about those who don't add that last part? Well, hey, hey, hey. I mean, you know, I'm not as bad as some. I, you know, so, you know, we got a good deal going on here, you know. You get me in heaven, I get a little bit of this, but not as much as before. Huh. Interesting. Because swindlers and adulterers, homosexuals, do not inherit the kingdom of God. Who are you? I've believed, I've been washed, I've been changed. Oh, yeah, temptations still exist. But I have been changed. I'm just trying to live up to who I am now. That's right. Doggone it. I'm not from this time. I'm from the future. We don't squabble with this junk where I'm from. We don't have these issues where I'm from. I need to... I need to be reminded where I'm from. And that's what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Your past does not determine your future. That's the amazing truth of what it means to put your faith in Christ. It doesn't mean that we are transformed overnight because sanctification is this process where God works with us in the process. We move forward only about as fast as we're willing to work with him. Every time we dig in our heels, things slow down. When we disobey, things slow down. When we confess and we repent, he picks it up and the pace picks up. Sanctification is the process of getting from where we were to where we already are positionally in time and space. But through that whole process, the change in us, the change positionally has already been accomplished. So when we find ourselves disobeying, when we find ourselves sinning and struggling and swindling and cheating, and ne- we have to stop and say, wait, am I still that person? I am not. I have been changed. Now those who, and hear this straight, those who have been changed, you who have been changed, us, We never, I'm going to talk as slow as I can. We never outgrow our need for Jesus' regenerating power. We never outgrow it, which means you will need him today. That's what it means to be in the process of being sanctified. We'll never outgrow it. We never arrive, which means obviously we stumble. But still speaking to who we are, Paul says, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God keeps changing people. He changes people when they believe, and he keeps changing those of us who have believed. Aren't you glad for that? Amen? Amen. You know, let me just close with this idea. You never know, you never know the impact that you might have on someone who's watching when you choose to display something that is more Jesus-like than us-like. We all have failed, but when you choose to respond correctly, you just never know who's watching. This was a story read right out of a book being the Body by Chuck uh, Colson. A few years ago, he was standing in a long line in Jakarta, Indonesia. He and some of the prison fellowship colleagues had been traveling all night. It was now early in the morning. If you've ever done some of those flights and you end up, you land someplace in Asia and you just feel like you're like you're another planet, sleep deprived and the language and the smells and the, the sound, everything's so different. The terminal was hot and steamy, and they were so tired. And Chuck Swindoll relates. He said, the passport was sticky in my hand, and I was exhausted and exasperated by the long, inefficient line snaking ahead of us. I was worried that we were going to miss our next flight, and the ministry friends who were there waiting for us would have to leave and come back again. But Chuck adds, I was also determined not to let my frustration get the better of me. So I kept talking with my friends, and we laughed, and we made jokes, and we made the best of a difficult situation. Two years later, he received a letter from a businessman who lived in Singapore. The man had been a follower of Confucius, but he sent his children to a, a little Presbyterian Sunday school to get moral training. And one Sunday, he picked his kids up, and he heard the end of the sermon on a Sunday morning, and he saw that uh, the pastor had actually picked up a book and on, it, was, it was Chuck Colson's book, Born Again, and Chuck Colson's picture was on the back. So the, this pastor was holding it up. It was a picture of Chuck. And just a few months later, that same businessman was stuck in that same long line steaming in the Jakarta airport. And when he glanced over to the line next to him, he spotted the face that was on the back of that book. And he knew who Chuck Colson was. And he said, he was so impressed by Chuck Colson's calm demeanor and cheerfulness, that when he got back to Singapore, Singapore, he got a copy of the book, and he read it, and he committed his life to Christ. How we live can make a huge difference, an eternal difference. But we are not displaying them how much better people we are. It would be easy to be frustrated right now. But that's not the way we're wired. That's not who we are. We're gonna be gracious and patient. How are you living? Do we live in such a way that people wonder what the change is? You realize that it doesn't demand perfection. It doesn't demand never stumbling. <laughs> But it does demand attempting to depend on the Spirit of God to live according to our future kingdom citizenship. You never know the impact that you might have. Let's pray together. As we get ready to deal with Christ, listen to these words from... The second letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote in chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. If you today would like to live in such a way, but you know You know already of things that are getting in the way, then now is the time to confess those. He is not asking for perfection, but He does require that you continue to be dependent on Him on a regular daily basis. And if you say, How wonderful it would be to have that kind of an influence on someone if they were watching, then guess what? We can begin to assume they're watching. After all, we are not from around here. We, where I'm from, that's not how we roll. Jesus, help us to live in a way that brings you glory. I ask it in your precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.